Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We are going to finish this chapter today, having been in it for a few weeks, actually a few months, and uh, complete this section, not only chapters 9 through 11, but also chapters 1 through 11. This will mark a significant turn in the book of Romans. The, um, the tenor changes, the imperatives change. He's going to begin telling us how to live and what to do. It's the practical response to the theology he's been laying out. And I want to thank you for, uh, especially the last three chapters. Uh, when I was starting into chapter 9, I had a friend who's preached the Romans who said, well, if you don't split the church, you'll probably uh, have uh, an explosion of your email because this is going to be such a traumatic time in your church. Can I tell you it's been just the opposite here at Mission Road? Uh, we, we have experienced such amazing insights into the grace of God and your response to these very deep and sometimes provocative doctrinal uh, uh, convictions that Paul's laying out has been nothing short of amazing. So I want to thank you for, for just taking God at his word, believing what God has said, and leaving the implications to him. And when we pick up the, uh, uh, the, the mantle here in chapter 12... Uh, things are going to change. In fact, we might say it this way. If you don't like being told what to do, you don't want to come during chapters 12 and following because Paul starts saying, here's who you are to be and here's what you need to do in response to the great doctrine of salvation that he's laid out for 11 chapters. Well, let's find it, finish up in this little last paragraph known as the doxology, that which gives praise to God. Let me read it for us again to just set it in our minds. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who is first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory for all the ages. Amen. As we finish Romans 11 this morning, I, I understand what you understand, that our nation is in the middle of an unbelievable political cycle and political race. It certainly garnered more unmatched attention than anything I've seen in my own lifetime. And I understand the, the passion as a U.S. citizen of uh, wanting to see who's the president, who are senators, who are representatives, but I find it quite honestly disheartening at what I'm continually hearing, at least on social media and in some conversations around the atrium of our church, at a Christian's perspective at this election cycle. Can I remind everyone that we will be voting for a commander-in-chief, not a pastor-in-chief? 
Can I also remind you that nowhere in the New Testament does Paul give any admonition or guidelines as to how to engage the political process. He couldn't engage the political process. Caesar was not only the king, Caesar was God according to Roman law. And may I remind us that let me just tell you this. Can I be a prophet here on this, in this tongue-in-cheek on this Sunday morning? Um, and you can mark it down, mark the date, mark the time. I know exactly who's going to win the presidential race in, um, in November. I, I know. I, I, can, I can tell you if you really want to know by turning the page to Romans chapter 13. I know exactly who's going to win. Romans 13, verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. And remember, this is Paul talking about Caesar, who said he was God. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by who? By God. You know who's going to win in, in, uh, in, in the fall? The one God wants to win. God is not going to wake up on that Wednesday morning and say, oh no, they got it wrong. If he knows, if he's ordained, if he cares, we should vote our conscience, we should be involved in whatever level we need to, but we don't despair. We don't lament. That's not our position as believers. Paul says that they've been appointed by God down further in the passage. We'll get there in a few months. Can I remind you what Paul told the Philippians? <laughs> Our citizenship is in... It's where? Our citizenship as a believer is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I sure we wish we had... As much passion, activism, discussion, motivation, urgency, and fervor about our true citizenship and the kingdom of God as I hear so many believers expressing about who's going to sit in an office for four or eight years. I'm not a pacifist. I'll vote and I'll wake up on that Wednesday after that Tuesday and say, God is still on the throne. You do believe that, don't you? And God didn't say, whoops. He's never said whoops on any election. This is an election. Remember, Paul is under Caesar and it's about to be Nero who's going to kill Christians for sport. And during that reign, Peter said, submit to the government, pray for the leaders. I just get a little animated at how animated we get about this thing. I hope the world doesn't look at us and say, wow, those Christians sure are despairing about what, what could happen. Some of their rights might be taken away. If any man follows after Jesus, he denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows him. Christians don't have any rights except those to obey Christ, right? Let's just remember that. And you say, what does that have to do with Romans chapter 11? Romans chapter 11, in the culmination of the end uh, uh, exclamation point that he puts on this argument, is that God is over history. God is over salvation history. God is over the world history. God is over the universe's history. And that's going to have pay incredible spiritual returns and dividends if we can hold on to that. Now, 
As we uh, finish up this chapter, we got to go back to our, our hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are just principles of interpretation. The first, main, most important principle in interpretation is context. Well, you know, the real estate, our real estate friends say the most important principle in real estate is location, location, location. And in hermeneutics, it's context, context, context. And in the context here, we have to remember what Paul has discussed for the last three and a half chapters going back into chapter 8, culminating at the end of verse, excuse me, chapter 11. God is sovereign. God chooses. God rejects. God grants and grafts Gentiles salvation in his salvation history with, Jude, with Israel. And he will one day regraft Israel back, a believing Israel, back into his salvation plan as well. Now this section began, just look back for a moment at chapter 8. Because this idea of God's sovereignty and salvation didn't start in chapter 9, verse 1. It actually uh, picks up at the end of chapter 8. We know verse uh, 28 very well. Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he, what's the word? Foreknew. He also, what's the word? Predestined. To become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That's the beginning of the discussion, which is going to sound a lot like the end of the discussion here at the end of Romans 11. Let's read on for a moment. What do we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And who will bring a charge against who? God's elect. That's where he begins this discussion. And it goes all the way through the end of chapter 11. God's elective purposes. God's predestination. Uh, the tag word that history, church history has put on this is Calvinism. But Paul raises interesting points in these three and a half chapters. He says God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. God chooses some. He doesn't choose all. God hardens some. He softens others. I mean, heavy duty stuff. And then he also says, salvation is open to whoever will believe. And if you scratch your head and you say, that just... That seems a little deep for my floaties. I don't know that I can, I can understand that. I can't get my mind around that. You would join the Apostle Paul. One of my um, uh, favorite commentators in the book of Romans is an old commentator whose last name is Cranfield. Uh, many of you may have him on, on your shelf. He's one of the most reliable sources in the Greek New Testament in looking at all the nuances of the textual analysis in Romans. This is what he says. I love this. Quote, this doxology, he says, is natural and fitting, a natural and fitting conclusion according to Paul's argument. <laughs> Paul has certainly not provided neat answers to the baffling questions which arise in connection with the subject matter of these three chapters. Can you say understatement? I mean, listen to that again. <laughs> Paul, you know, God chooses. We have to believe. God is responsible. We're responsible. How do we sort that out? Cranfield says, Paul has certainly not provided neat answers to the baffling questions which arise in connection with the subject matter of these three chapters. But 
He has certainly not swept away all the difficulties. But if we have followed him through these chapters with serious and open-minded attentiveness, we may well feel that he has given us enough to enable us to repeat the amen in this doxology in joyful confidence that the deep mystery which surrounds us is neither a nightmare mystery of meaninglessness nor a dark mystery of arbitrary omnipotence, but the mystery which will never turn out to be anything other than the mystery of the altogether good and merciful and faithful God. That's so good. Okay, back to Romans 11 at the, the last little paragraph there. We've broken this passage down, this doxology. Doxology just means a statement of praise. Sometimes we sing a song called the doxology. Uh, Aaron was talking about singing a refrain, Alleluia, which is really a doxology. It's just, it's just ascribing to God what is worthy of his being. That's praise and adoration, adulation and worship. That's what he does in verses 33 to 36. And we've broken this passage down into three parts of threes. There's the big picture if you want to look at the PowerPoint. It's three triads, three sections of three, three, three sections of, of three-part praise. And we've said these are three theological triads for staggering doxology. It just makes us off balance. Let's do a quick review of the first two, and then we'll finish up this third. The first theological triad is this. Three declarations about God's unsearchable greatness. He gives us three statements, three indicatives, three declarations about God's unsearchable greatness. First of all, verse 33, he has limitless knowledge. His knowledge has no limits. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He uses a financial term, uh, I mean, uh, excuse me, a, uh, a nautical term, uh, an aquatic term, the depth of the riches with a financial term, the depth. You can't reach the bottom of how rich he is in what? Wisdom and knowledge. Two sides of the same coin. Knowledge means he knows everything. Wisdom means he knows how to do what's best with everything. And we have to trust that he is all knowledgeable and all wise. We looked at Psalm 139, which outlines both of these. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Now, I want to back up for a second and tell you what's going to happen in the coming, um, uh, uh, in the last triad. Paul is going to talk about salvation history, but the principles are also true of national, international, world, and universal history. So his wisdom is applied to salvation here predominantly in the context, but everything God does is wise. Everything God does is good. And he's rich in this wisdom and knowledge, which means he has all we, let's say it this way, he is all we need. Secondly, he has unquestionable judgment. How unsearchable are his judgments. I love this Greek word. It means impossible to fully understand, untraceable. As someone who likes to hunt, uh, you're trying to trace an animal. You're trying to figure out where an animal has been so you can trail it. This is say, this, it's a hunting word. It means the animal can't be traced or tracked. God's ways, his judgment can't be traced or tracked. That he saves some and not all. That he sends some to heaven, some to hell. It can't be traced. It's beyond us. Which leads to number three. He has inscrutable plans. 
He has inscrutable plans. They can't be figured out. How unfathomable are his ways? Again, another nautical term, which means you can't find the bottom. How bottomless are his judgments? Practical implication of that is we, we can't fit God and his judgments into the tiny space. The infinite God doesn't fit in the tiny space between our ears and between our eyes and the back of our head. His ways are bigger than ours. Remember Isaiah 55, 8? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's what Paul's saying. They're just beyond us. Remember what David said in Psalm 139? I run out of language. It's too wonderful for me. I can't even explain it. I can't attain to it. Three statements Paul makes. Just explodes in praise. But secondly, the second triad, he reverts to a different technique, and that's asking questions. Three questions provoking answers. All these answers to these questions are God's greatness. Three questions provoking answers of God's greatness. Now these (coughs) questions uh, crescendo. They get more audacious and more absurd Paul asks three questions, and these, as we said last week, these are not questions. These are statements. We all understand that. Men, when your wife says, are you going to wear that shirt with those pants? That's not a state. That, that's not a question. It's a statement. You know, Son, are you going to take out the trash? That's not, a, that's not a question of interrogative curiosity. That's a statement. He asks these three questions knowing that we'll know the answer. Here's the first one. Who can explain God? Who can explain God? Verse 34, who has known the mind of God? Who can get behind his eyes and see the world as he sees it and understand it as he conceives it? It's a citation of Isaiah 43, 13, which interestingly is a citation, Paul uses a citation of the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He often does that. So it has a little different nuance, but I love to put the nuances of the original Hebrew and even the the the, uh, Septuagint together. Isaiah says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Paul phrases that, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's directed his spirit? Who sits with God at a board table and says, let's have a plan? No one. No one. Who can explain God? No one can. But I'll tell you what, the only explanation we have is that he's good, righteous, holy, just, and exceedingly gracious and merciful to us. Second question he asks is, (laughs) absurd again, who can counsel God? It gets even more ridiculous. Look at verse 34 in the middle. Who Who became his counselor? Who can let God know what he ought to do with his world, especially as it relates to us living in it. It's the second part of Isaiah 40, verse 13. Or as his counselor, who has informed God? Now, here's what I've noticed in my own prayer life. I've noticed it in group prayers. Some of this comes out in the way we pray. There's a difference between making a genuine request of God and making a request... That's really more of a suggestion to God. 
You know what I mean? We just suggest. I'm going to ask a question with the answer. I'm going to make sure, God, that you know I know what's best in this situation so that you can answer it the way I think is best. Especially with regards to salvation. We just presume on God and we're his counselors. God's our, our counselee. We're going to let him know what he should do. Nothing, nothing wrong. In fact, it's, we're biblically commanded to bring a request to God. But bringing a request to God is not the same as counseling God and telling him what he ought to do. And then third question is even, it's, it's just absurd. It's ridiculous. To whom is God indebted? He asks in verse 35, or who has first given to him, that's God, that it might be paid back to him again, that's the person. Does God owe us, does God owe anyone anything? Has someone done something so spectacular for God that God elbows the angels and said, I owe him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something right for her. I'm in the debtor's column. I'm going to make sure I pay them back. He says, no. Now, remember, this is in the context of salvation. This is so important to realize that no one does anything good enough for God to notice and say, ah, they've done this for me. They've done this for the world. They've done this for the poor. They've done this for the helpless. They've done this for you fill in the blank. I'm going to go ahead and save them. No one is owed anything from God except an eternal, Christless hell because of our rejection of him from birth. In a somber way, that leads us to the third triad, and this is where we'll look more carefully. The third triad, that was reviewed. Now we're back to some fresh material here in this third triad, three attributions of God's greatness over history. Three attributions of God's greatness over history. Now, here's what I want you to do. You have to think at two levels here because Paul is speaking at two levels. He's speaking as a general principle, but I think even more specifically, he's speaking of salvation principles. So if you want to, in brackets, put three attributions of, of God's greatness over salvation history. That's what he's primarily talking about. Salvation history. So he's talking about the principle that God's overall, but specifically the principles applied to God's ruling overall in salvation because that's the context of the last three and a half chapters. This is broken down into three parts as well. The first is this. God is the source of all history or God is the source of all of salvation history. For from him. Now, anytime you see the word for, grammatically, you know that it's a dependent clause, right? It's a subordinate clause. It leans back on something. What did he just talk about? Being indebted, God being indebted to us. He says, that's ridiculous. God owes no one anything for, from him. You see the connection? He says, God, God doesn't owe us anything, but I'll tell you that he's the source of everything. But specifically, here, he's the source of salvation. But first of all, let's, let's make sure we know what we're talking about. For from him, who's him? Context refers to God the Father. 
But there are other New Testament passages that wonderfully muddy this water. And what I mean by that is, is from God the Father are all things, we'll know what that means in a second, and salvation uh, history. But the New Testament also affirms that from Christ are all things. 1 Corinthians eleven twelve says, For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. Remember, the first woman was taken out of the rib of man, and also a man is born through the woman. He gives those illustrations. It says, All things originate from God. He's the great source. All things originate from God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, though, says this. There is one God... The Father, from whom are all things, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. Good enough, except he keeps going. And one Lord Jesus, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So is God the Father, or God the Son, or is it maybe God the Spirit, who's the source of all things? And the answer is letter D, all the above, right? We can't chop up the Trinity. How, how many gods do we serve and, and believe in? One. <coughs> God is the source of all history. Specifically, he's speaking of God being the source of salvation history. God doesn't owe salvation to anyone who's done something so wonderful that God's going to grant them eternal life. And he says, for from him. From him comes salvation. This isn't just a generic uh, uh, doxology or ascription of praise. He's speaking specifically in the context that salvation comes from him. Secondly, God is the means of all history, or God is the means of all salvation history, both. And through him. Hebrews 2 verse 10 says, It was fitting for him, from, for, for, uh, for whom are all things, through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Salvation is what he's talking about there. That it comes through him, through, through his son. And, and if you want to look at it in the, in the, um, in the time dimension categories, you can look at it as, from him, that's justification. Through him, that's sanctification. And to him, we'll get to in a moment, that's glorification. It's all of God. Everything related to our salvation comes from God. I love this through him. I think, I think the entire world of sanctification is in that little world. Through him. We obey through him. We love through him. We fight sin through him. It's all about him. It's not a system. It's not behavior modification. It's not doing better or trying harder. It's through him. We do salvation because of him. We do salvation through him. We act out Romans 12, 1 and following through him. And the second that the him H-I-M drops out of our salvation experience. We've just become Pharisees who attempt our salvation by works and not faith. Thirdly, 
God is the consummation of all history, or you can put in parentheses, salvation history. It says, and to him are all things. Now, before we go to him, let's go ahead and deal with the big question in most of your minds. If you're smart, and I know you are, you've asked this question, does all really mean all things? From him are all things, through him are all things, to him are all things. Does that mean sin? Does sin come from him, through him, to him? And as we said a, uh, a few weeks ago, all in the scripture does not always mean all. And we use the same word the same way. There is a, a, a swimming pool close to my house, and I, I stop at a, a, at a red light, and I can see the, the signs right by that pool, uh, on the pool. And it says this, all must take a shower. So at the red light, should I put my car in park, jump out, and go in there, in there and take a shower? Am I a part of that all? Well, I want to take a shower eventually, but that day, am I a part of all must take a shower? What's that talking about? Who are the all in that sign? The people going to the pool. So all is contextually defined many times unless the context tells you it means all. And it does when it does. What is all things here? It's not sin, certainly. What has he been talking about for three and a half chapters? Salvation. Eternity past. The experience of sanctification. Eternity future. That's the all things. To him are all parts of salvation. To him are all things. Now, we can stop and say, but to the glory of God are all things in his universe too. He did create a world in which he knew there would be sin. The Lamb of God was slain when? Before the foundation of the world. But he's not the author of sin. Albert Barnes says this, really helpful. The universe, the creation, or still more particularly, the things of which the apostle is discoursing, that's what he means by all. He does not affirm that he's the author of sin or sinful thoughts. Not that he creates evil or his evil is designed to promote his glory. The apostle is not discoursing about these things, but of his method in bestowing favor, grace, on people who believe. And he says that these are to be conferred in such a way as to promote his honor and glory, to declare the praise of him who is the original source, the creator, the proprietor of all things. Play the salvation. To him are all things. That means in the end, faith, faith turns into sight. Then he says this, to him, <coughs> excuse me, to him be the glory forever. Notice that the to him and the to him. To him are all things, to him be the glory forever. <coughs> um, this glo- I want to break this down because we read this, read this so fast we don't see what's there. Glory is such a rich biblical concept. There's two words that help us understand glory. Kavod, which is Old Testament Hebrew for glory, and doxa, which is New Testament for glory. Listen to when you put them together. We've talked about this earlier in Romans. The word kavod, when it says God is, has glory in the Old Testament, he has kavod, it means he, he's heavy, literally. He has substance. He, 
He weighs a lot. That's the literal word. He has substance. He is dense and rich in his essence. It's like being handed a piece of lead and it's heavier than you think. God has substance and he's heavy. He's not to be trifled with. He's serious. But the New Testament term is doxa, which is it's used of the light that comes from the sun. Now, if you're like me and you at one point looked at the sun, this is a bad idea. It's, uh, it, it, if you look away, and especially if you look away from the sun after glancing at it and close your eyes, what do you still see? You see the sun. Because it's so bright, it paralyzes temporarily, and it can be permanent if you look too long. It paralyzes the retina, the nerve, the nerve endings on the back of your eyeball. And it, it's so bright that those nerve endings in response to that light can't let go of it very quickly. It has to slowly fade because it's so intense. Let's stretch that illustration to looking at Christ. If we look at him and see his glory and turn away and live our lives, we still see his greatness. He's heavy, he's substantial, he's glorious, he's great, he's bright. He makes an impact on our souls. To him be that glory. We want to be responders to it. People whose the retina of our soul is just paralyzed by the greatness of Christ. Walking around in staggering doxology, we just want to say, I don't know a lot, but I know that I was lost and I'm found. I know that God is great and Christ is real. I know that he died and he rose from the grave. His imprint is on us. Look at the hymn. From him, through him, to him are all things. It's Christ-centered. And then he says the word. Amen. We, We... Say amen so often, I'm not sure we really rush to what it means. Amen means, so be it, I agree, let it be done, I submit. Amen, I submit. It's true. So after Romans 8, 28 and following, through chapter 9, through chapter 10, through chapter 11, God chooses some, not all, God hardens, God softens the same Sun that melts the wax, hardens the clay. He, he, chose two, uh, he chose one brother over another before they were even born, before they had done good or evil. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's gracious to him, he's gracious. Compassion on whom he'll be compassionate. He chose Israel, they rejected him. He brings the Gentiles in. He's gonna re-graft Gentiles, graft Gentiles into his salvation plan, re-graft Israel, saving, saved Israel, Christian Israel, Christian Jews into his saving branch. He steps back and says, I, I, I can't explain it. I don't understand all the implications. But I submit to it. Amen. His last word is, so be it. I'm okay with it. Look up at verse 22. <clears throat> Behold then, such a summary statement for these chapters the kindness and severity of God. That God would save some 
and kindness, that God would judge some forever in a Christless, never-ending hell. I was thinking about this this week, and my mind drifted back to a passage that, that talks about God's kindness and his severity. It's one of my favorite passages looking at the attributes of God. It's in the book of Nahum. If you want to go there, you can. If you want to just listen, you can. Nahum. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1 says this, The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, a jealous... Listen to, listen to this God that, that he, he uh, 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 describes. <clears throat> a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. There's the opposite side. Great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In a whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea. He makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. The mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence. The world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. And just when you get to the point of despair, Nahum says, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows all those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies in the darkness. That's the same God that Paul is describing in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Oh, the kindness and severity of God. If I have been impacted by anything in this, this study, I, I am more afraid of God. God is not someone to be trifled with. Thought of occasionally. So we're at the end of Paul's argumentative section of Romans 1 through 11. Let's gain a little altitude before we go into chapter 12. <clears throat> Here are four of my takeaways, just personally. You can have different ones. You can have others. First of all, God is infinitely good, wise, and just. God is infinitely good and wise and just. He does what's right. I don't always understand it, but I trust that he's good, he's wise, and he's just, especially in his plan for saving men. And if you know the infinitely good and wise God, you'll trust him and you'll trust his word and you'll trust his ways. Secondly, number two, our best response to the sovereignty of God and salvation is humility. That's all in that word, amen. Just let it be, Lord. It, it is true. I agree. I am humbled. I'm not going to try to fit your great mind into my understanding or your timeless, limitless counsel into my wisdom. This should humble us. It should humble us to the ground to say, what a God. 
from him is salvation, through him is salvation, and to him is salvation. And if you believe, he's extended that to you. Thirdly, it's our duty to be obedient and submissive to this God. Isn't it interesting, after three and a half chapters of sovereignty of God and salvation, after 11 chapters of heavy, rich, deep, dense theology, because of that, Romans 12 says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which, are spiritual, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't act like the world. Think like the world. Be entertained like the world. Talk like the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your thinking, of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to see humility? For though the grace given, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, look at this in connection to chapter 11. Not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Is that clear? It's humility based on obedience and submission to God. And then the fourth thing coming out of this is just this. God is God and I'm not. God is God. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not God. I don't have his wisdom. I don't have his knowledge. I don't have his understanding. But we do have his word. And he's given us that. Remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but he has given us things through revelation to hold on to and by which to live and discern. So we come to the end of this uh, section and I go back to Calvin's quote because it's so apropos. He says this. If anyone sets out to know more than God has revealed, he shall be overwhelmed by the infinite brightness of his inaccessible light. You know what he's saying? Don't wade, skate out onto the, the thin ice of things that are true, but you don't always understand. It might not support you there. If you expect that it's going to support your understanding... You may fall through. Now, the good news is we've all skated out there and we've fallen through the ice, haven't we? And it's cold and we don't understand everything. We have a God who rescues us and says, let's read it again. It's there. You can read it tonight. You can read it today. You can understand what I've told you, but you won't understand it all. What has he told us? God is absolutely sovereign in salvation and our responsibility is to believe the gospel. Are, are you okay with that? That's what he said. To believe both. I want to tell you, at the end of this section, I, I, I gravitated. Let me tell you my two lives. One was as a rabid Arminian. God doesn't choose. There's no predestination. That means he knows beforehand what you're already going to do because God would never do that because he's nice and like me. And that's, that's kind of what I would do. And I fought the Calvinistic side. And then I came to the Calvinistic side and said, oh, no, he's sovereign to you. Over sovereignty is exercised everyone, and, and you know if you're going to believe, then you're if you're elect, and if you're elect, you'll believe. And if not, no big deal. So, what's for lunch? And then you read Romans nine, ten, eleven, and he says, "God is absolutely sovereign. Believe it." And your responsibility is to believe the truth of the gospel. And you go, but you can't have both. 
And Paul says, really? Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable are his ways. Are you willing to say, I believe things I don't completely understand and find yourself in staggering doxology that God would save a sinner like you, like me?